Disclaimer. The discussions and personal opinions of the guests do not replace professional advice. It's recommended that you seek your own independent professional mental health or legal support to meet your individual needs. Hi, my name is Rachel Goh and I'm a clinical psychologist. In each episode, we explore the width and breadth of the human psyche to better understand why the people around us behave the way that they do. Welcome to Life in the Psych Lane. It was this whole operation of, of things mm-hmm. as an undercover. So mm-hmm. I guess it was so, you know, that adrenaline and that yes. high that you got from that job um, was very addictive. Learning to live again and learning to, to, to work through, through yeah. you know, the trauma that that's caused them. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the podcast, Life in the Cyclone. It's such a privilege to have you on our episode. I've been dying to have these chats with you. Um, We have a bit of a history going, but I was wondering if you would be able to give us a bit of a background and a bio of your work and career history because you've done some incredible things and I'd love you to share it with us. Absolutely, Rachel. It's an absolute privilege to be here and it's so nice to catch up with you because we haven't seen each other for so long. You know, I'm showing my age here, but I go back uh, and my career began in '95 uh, when I joined the Victorian Police Force. So I, I started off like every other cadet at the Academy at Glen Waverley. Um, we ended up doing a two-year probationary program. So mm-hmm. that, that, that basically entailed going around to all the different areas, just trying to get their recruits to see what they, you know, what they wanted to do, um, you know, outside of the probationary period. And um, that also encompassed a couple of um, junior phase training stations. They spent, mm-hmm. you know, uh, up to five, six months at each one, mm-hmm. um, which was great. Yeah, and it, it kind of, you know, gave you a good overview of the, the police force. And I guess after that, I was very lucky because I only spent about two years in uniform. Oh, I was actually, right. yeah, chosen to, uh, to go to a what we called back then a district support group, mm-hmm. uh, which was DSG, and mm-hmm. uh, it was like a little special operation, like a little specialised, um, you know, group, you know, crime within the district, so like higher crime than you would would usually do within the uniform sector. Small time drives, you know, big burgs, burglaries, I should say, yeah. special <laughs> yeah, burgs, coal burgs. Yep, got it. Okay. So- Hot burglaries were people, you know, that were or were um, caught in the act. And cold yep. burglaries were, were you'd go afterwards, and then you'd, you'd wow. find, find out, you know, who the offender was. But um, so we did all that kind of kind of crime, and and I was lucky enough after building up a lot of briefs briefs of evidence that is being chosen to do a, a like a little mini stint at the Victoria Police Drug Squad, um, and that was really early in my career. Like I'd only yeah. been in the job a few years, so um, quite fortunate. And yeah. uh, and when I was there, um, I'd always dreamt of being, you know, a Charlie's Angel or undercover. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes, yeah, you know, I'd love to watch the Bionic Woman and everything back then, you know, and and see all the kind of undercover. Yes. Um, you know, uh, shows on TV, and but I, I didn't really drill. Like, I get to the drug squad, and they're doing drug buys, and I'm thinking, oh my god, that's amazing! Police are actually, you know, pretending to be crooks, and they're they're doing drug buys. Wait, what like, do you what do you call them? Drug drug buys. So what happens is, I'll just give you a little scenario. Yeah, yeah when um, drug offenders are caught, 
Yeah. Um, sometimes deals are made. So, you know, if you introduce your dealer to us and we'll mm-hmm. put an undercover in there, you know, we'll go more lenient on you if you can, you know, let us take that person off the street. On this particular day, um, the undercover who was going to buy, I think on that occasion, my first occasion, it was $12,000 job purchase of a tiny little bit of rock heroin. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and the and the there was only a, a one or two female undercovers in Victoria then, and she happened to have gone sick, and oh. so I said, "I'll do it," you know. <laughs> I love that. Hey, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. You're not trained or anything. Yeah. You know? And I said, "No, no, I can pull it off. I can pull it off." Bound and hard, went away, and then they came back and they said it was in uh, Lathdown Street, Carlton, mm-hmm. in, in a little coffee shop, or just outside the coffee shop, I should say, just by a laneway. Mm-hmm. And there was all the surveillance crew from the drug squad were in a building across the road. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I was told, don't you get out of that car, you know, because what had happened was the informer um, had been caught and it was a pretty bad crook, was introducing me to a Romanian group. Oh. Um, and they usually only dealt within the Romanian, you know, the Romanian group. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard to infiltrate at that time. So, yeah, so I ended up doing it. Uh, I did get out of the car and I did get in trouble. Yeah. That's what I've always known about you and I really love about you and that, you know, there's that level of independence that you will make the right decision backing yourself through and through. So, yeah, I have no doubt it was the right decision for you at the time. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was the right decision because it, it started my career, you know, kind of where it took off because yeah. I, I bought the $12,000 where the heroin came very, very proud of myself. and. Yeah. Um, and the rest is history. I went back in and, um, yeah, and, and then they put me through uh, undercover courses and, wow. and things like that. Yeah, so I started doing undercover for them and um, after that um, I became a detective as well. So mm-hmm. I ended up at the drug squad as a as a detective. So mm-hmm. I was doing hats on, hats off, you know, yeah. doing race of evidence in the drug raids. Wow. And then on the other side I was going in doing drug buys. Yeah. So, Best yeah. of both worlds in some ways, right? Oh, look, after I think it, it was eight years of, of drug undercover work and mm-hmm. um, I was quite burnt out. Yeah. After that. Heavy, so, heavy workload. Mm. And just just that whole mindset, you know, because there were jobs that I'd do where I was away for long periods of time from home. And luckily I, did. I didn't have a family that I had oh, I see. children or, or, a, or a husband or a wife or anything. Yeah. That could, I couldn't do it now, put it that way, not with yeah. that. Good, okay. It, it gives you people an indication of kind of how all in that kind of work can be, right? Like, and you essentially go where the work is, wherever the drug buyers are, you kind yeah. of have to do it, right? Well, yeah, like like I can give you an example of that. Mm-hmm. I, I went to work on my first day at the drug squad and I didn't see my home for two weeks. No. So I went to work uh, and they said <laughs> we're doing drug raids, you know, up in uh, Gippsland. Yeah. And I went, oh, okay. So I didn't have a chance to go home and pack a bag. We just and you just went. Wow. We just went. So, and from there we spent about four days and then from there, it, it, you know, things just have, have to roll on. So, because when you when you get, you know, a piece of information, you have to act on it and it, was just, it just has that roll-on effect. So, with this particular job, it just rolled into two weeks' work. Mm-hmm. So, clothes were bought, you know, from supermarkets. That's wherever, yeah. Wherever we could, you know, and I'm talking late 80s, uh, early 90s back the oh. early 90s back then so yeah. it wasn't like everything was available to you no it's not like it is now yeah no, no. it was a fun experience but yeah very very little time off um yeah uh, having a day off it, it didn't really happen too much yeah. when, in those days 
Was that, would you say that like being a detective and then being, um, you know, doing the drug buys and the undercover work was sort of the highlight or the highest um, in terms of achievement or rank or the position you were in your police career? Yeah, look, I was a senior detective uh, for, you know, at the, at the end and, and I did do stints of ACT UP, which, you know, the, the acting sergeant and so forth. Yeah. It was kind of surreal. Yeah. We, it, it was almost, you know, you'd go in and, and you'd be kind of your, the actor and I used to have a partner, uh, Damien. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'd do a lot of jobs together or sometimes we did individual ones, but mm-hmm. we'd jump together and, and do jobs together. And it, it was almost like everybody worked around us Mm-hmm. So we come into the briefing and here we are and we've got surveillance, we've got detectives, we've got special operations, you know. Cool. Right. You know, so it was this whole operation of, of things mm-hmm. as an undercover. So mm-hmm. I guess it was so, you know, that adrenaline and that yes. high that you got from that job um, was very addictive. Yeah, right. Isn't that interesting? Because, I mean, even as you say that as a psychologist in that perspective, it's like you're working on that adrenaline and you kind of have to be because it's like the situation calls for it. However, mm. maybe the job or most, you know, jobs that are kind of like that may not factor in, let's say, the downtime, neither to then repeat that and do it again. Absolutely, absolutely. And then you've also got, you know, when you're doing uh, jobs for a long period of time, you're at risk of developing Stockholm Syndrome, Yeah, uh, which I didn't, thank God, but but people do. Um, And you've got post-traumatic stress. Yes, very much. Yeah, so... um, Well, you know, and and not to mention, like you said before, burnout. Yeah. um, uh, It's it's, it's a hard way of life when you're burning the candle at both ends and you're also putting your life at high risk. So it's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, in someone in my position as a psychologist working with clients and, you know, that sense of justice and what we need in the community, it's such an important role that the policemen and women have. Like it just has to be there, even if, you know, at times there's a lack of faith in the justice system, just some degree we need to have that pillar and that foundational space to know that there is something that can be like the police force to protect the community for the better, right? Oh, absolutely. And and it's very disillusioning when you, you, you put massive briefs of evidence together, you know, for production in court mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the heart and soul into it. Like I and I, you know, drug laboratories that yeah. we, we would bust and I would, you know, painstakingly put these uh, briefs of evidence together and it'd take me forever. Yeah. And, um, and obviously it had to be of high quality standard, you know, to produce in court, for, you know, because you, you're talking about not the magistrates, you're talking about, you know, the uh, county court and maybe possibly even supreme in some in some cases. So then you get there and you've got the jury or whatever and uh, they get convicted because your evidence is great, but then they get a, a really lenient sentence and it's yeah. like that. You know, yeah, that's reasoning because you know they've they've ruined people's lives by manufacturing these drugs to you know hundreds and hundreds of people out there, yes. causing death, you know, and heartache, millions of well, not millions, but hundreds yes. of bad yes. yeah, and um and then they might get a, a community based order or or a suspended yeah. sentence or something, and it's like oh my god, what have I just done all that for? So 
I think we need to get better at that. I think. Yeah, agree. You know what? Actually, we'll come back to that one because I think you and I have a similar position in how many of those outcomes and charges that we see and just what the system yeah. maybe has a gap and can make an improvement on because you and I actually met, well, I was a provisional psychologist in my training years at Ways Housing Social Support Services. So it specializes in family violence and homelessness and you were actually my manager um, and I was very grateful for that because we had regular supervision and that's where I just started to really understand your experience, what you had, but then how invaluable that can be in translating that over into family violence. Can you tell me about your family violence work, history, interest? I think we both fell in love with that area. Absolutely. I fell into it by chance, complete fluke, actually. When I left the police force, I did 12 years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, Obviously, you know, I needed a new career and whatever. So I I sold up my house and I went Mm -hmm. and I bought a little farm, little nine acres down in Gippsland, so Gippsland, probably about 95. Mm -hmm. 97, 98 it was actually because that's when I started. So I bought this little farmlet and I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to work part-time and just chill for a while and, you know, I've obviously had a hard 12 years. Let's just go with it. I applied for two jobs. I applied for a job as the local laws officer at the Basco Shire Council. That that incorporated, you know, a whole gamut of things from – from um, rescuing animals off roads and herding cows off off main roads and things to to like local bylaws. Wow! Yep, it was great fun. And then I also put in for a job at the Salvation Army as a yep. uh, intake youth worker, and yep. Um, yep. I got both. <laughs> so it turned out to be this, you know, downtime ended up as seven days a week work. So yes, and then both of them ended up offering me a full time job. So I had to choose, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go uh, with the community sector. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it's something that I, I was always really passionate about. And I'd been studying mm-hmm. um, certificate for in youth and family anyway. So mm-hmm. I, I ended up doing that. And um, and just by way of after, you know, about 12 months, because it was a homelessness organisation that yes. I was working for, yes. I, um, I, I had the opportunity to apply for a family violence position. Yeah. Uh, and not long after that, I became coordinator of the family violence uh, homelessness area. So yep. up there, and I was there for about four years. And um, anyway, I I saw a job at Ways where we yep. where we met yep. and we applied for that. And I, I I did a couple of years as a caseworker working yep. with family violence and uh, you know um, people survivors of family violence. And then I um, ended up you know going and becoming. Coordinator, then manager, yeah. then general manager. Generate, yep. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah. The- and you were leading the team, like, in, it was just so good to have. Like, even just from my experience, it was, I know it was nice to have. When you have a manager in that space and the way you lead people, the way you manage people, and then your experience, it's really nice to know that that is there. Um, and you can go in and chat and talk about what you need. And I know even when I stepped in the realm of family violence, it is a very eye-opening um, and can be a steep learning curve at times, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, some of the trauma that some of these women have been through, um, yes. it's very hard uh, to listen to. Uh, yeah, and, but it's also very rewarding, isn't it? Yes. One of the things that I often have to go through in a session with a client in this these scenarios may be just actually going through what the IDO is and which includes the Family Violence Act. I can't tell you how surprising it can be for most people, um, even just the general public, of what constitutes 
family violence. I'd be keen to hear it from you right. in what you would be able to share with everyone of some of the things we look for, we were working with, but then also what qualifies as violence. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a lot of ignorance out there, isn't there? And, and yeah. I think, you know, we need to really educate uh, and start at the ground at, at right in, in the schools because, yes. you know, you've got people just seek family violence as a physical, um, oh. you know, abuse as physical, yep. and it is, but there's a lot more to it. I mean, you've got your emotional, psychological abuse. And and sometimes, when and, and you would probably agree with me, yes. when you're talking to, you know, victims, survivors of family violence, they will say that, you know, the the physical scars heal, but the emotional ones don't. They're hungering. So, yep. Yeah. Yep. They stay with them forever. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of, you know, working through that and learning mm-hmm. to live learning to live again and learning to 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 work through through, yep. you know, the trauma that that's caused them. But there's also financial abuse, yep. spiritual abuse, cultural abuse. Yep. Um, you know, the Online, I think, you know, the surveillance. Yeah, yeah, with technology, online abuse, you know, social media is huge even, you know, with that. And um, I know men and women, you know, place, you know, videos up on on social media and other platforms. And, and, you know, that that constitutes family violence if they are in a a family Mm -hmm. uh, relationship. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's hard. But getting back to, um, I'm just digressing a little bit, but what you were talking about with intervention orders and so Mm -hmm. forth, I mean, Mm -hmm. we've come a long way. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, when I started, we used to have to, you know, get the women in the car, escape when, you know, the husbands or their partners were out. and Out of the house, right, yep. And race them into court ourselves before the police actually took out the orders. So now we're lucky enough police act on the, the client's behalf or the mm-hmm. the survivor of family violence behalf and takes out that intervention order on most occasions. Mm-hmm. Then, that didn't happen. That was up to the, to the woman. Who, oh, so, so yeah. when you're saying, I mean, because, you know, I've obviously come into the work knowing that police can execute yeah. on a client's yeah. behalf. So back in the day, what would the process no, be? We, we would have to, we'd have to get that woman into the court and we'd have to sit down and we'd have to do a whole application. With yeah, right. Normally it was me sitting down doing it for them, yes. or another family violence worker filling out this massive application while well, they're highly traumatised and everything else. And you're saying it's up to the woman too, meaning they have to be willing and in a, in the right mental space to even be able to Yeah, do yeah, yeah. and they have to get, go before the clerk and, and mm-hmm. ask to see a magistrate, go before a magistrate mm-hmm. um, ourselves without any police assistance or she would um, yeah, yeah. with the mm-hmm. support of a family violence worker mm-hmm. and then, um, yeah, apply to that magistrate for an interim um, yeah. at that time for it to come back to court at a later date. So, um, yeah, that, that I, I think, you know, over the years, uh, police gradually uh, played, played a, a bigger role. I mean, even when I, you know, going back to when I was a policewoman, we, I think we did about an hour in the academy on family violence out of the whole five months. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, which was which is such a, uh, you know, just so minimal compared, you know, considering that a lot of our work in uniform is made up of attending Family violence. Uh, yep. Yeah. Which is, I think that's that's what I was. I wonder where your work would highlight because you had the experience in uniform, um, and undercover work, and then the ways is very much a crisis kind of family violence service where you know many of the women and children 
and also men that we had previously spoken about, mostly, primarily women and children had fled through the night where the police then intervened and then they arrived at ways. So the work was quite rural and yeah. in crises, right? Well, that's that's right. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and then, you know, we'd, we were lucky enough uh, at ways because we had an outreach service, but we also, as you said, had that crisis service. So we had access to to crisis intervention and, and uh, safe houses and wow. uh, transitional houses that we could put women in safely or going through up through the ref- refuge system. Mm-hmm. Um, we had that kind of direct um, line and service to that. Plus we had uh, amazing, you know, psychologists like yourself oh, to so help out. Uh, Thank you. And so forth. So, um, yeah, it was really good. And and I guess, you know, from from there, Orange, it's grown again since I yes. left because I retired yes. a couple of years ago. Um, and now you've obviously got Orange Door, which has taken over as as a uh, as a major hub for yes. family violence with child protection and children's services and also perpetrator um, services as well as family violence. Maybe it would be cool because I'm curious and if we, you know, you think about your experience over your career, you know, and you've had experience, I think you said when you were a policewoman, it was the sexual assault unit and then yeah. how it has moved and progressed and, you know, it's, it, you know, how we, I guess in the community sector, how something like the police links in within the community when we're working at ways and community health services, whether that moves into private. I'm interested to hear your journey or experience and sort of seeing how you would connect the dots and how you feel maybe the family violence support has grown in the community. It definitely has. It definitely has because I think we've now got not only have we got the police on board. I mean, they're always on board. Don't get me wrong. It's just hard because they've got a a very tough job behind them anyway, dealing with other crimes. And and back then, they didn't see family violence as a crime. You know, yes, uh, yes, unfortunately, yes. and it is. A and crime. you say back it's then, what, what year are you talking about? Like I'm you know, in the eighties, nineties. Totally. Yep. Yeah, so gradually that's been pushed to the forefront through through educating, um, you know, the, pretty much any everyone in community services, but also yep. the Victorian police force, the court system, everything. Yep. So you've now got a system that actually uh, protects and and almost wraps that that person who is escaping family violence up and actually yes. gives them gives them services, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all around from from even learning to whether they choose to stay in their home and be safe in home. Yes, yep. And have services provide maybe, you know, security system, cameras and things, changing of locks, yes. uh, the intervention order, of course, and, and other services. I mean, we've also got case management within the Victorian Police Force now. Family oh, case management wow, now. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, so, so they actually work and, um, and help and, and also do regular welfare checks on, on yes. women as well. So they've really come to the party. Yes, and I love hearing that because what you're saying I hear is more all the services in some ways where it's orange or, or sort of the multidisciplinary spaces are coming in space, yeah. space. Yeah, I'm a huge supporter of the MDC and RAM, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, which is a panel of yes, yes. that will come yes. together and and, and talk about recidivist offenders, yes, uh, and and really high risk offenders. So um, you know, it's something that I used to chair, yeah, uh, alongside. Uh, I do remember that, yeah, police officer, um, and a, a police, um, as in an officer rank, mm-hmm. and um, and we would co-chair this meeting, and it had specialists such as family violence um, workers, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. perpetrator, um, workers, child protection, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 
it, it was just the whole gamut, you know, doctors would come in. Any other drug and alcohol. Yep. Yeah, because, yep. you know, a lot of the time, especially in Dandenong, um, yes. that, that, that huge drug and alcohol. You know, and also the cultural, um, yeah. a, a heavy cultural component yeah. of population yeah. there, right, that we all work That's with. right. So yeah. cold services, uh, you know, would come in. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, cultural services, that is. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, talking the lingo again, sorry. But <laughs> <laughs> sometimes like, no, fill me in. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was, it's great because everybody gets together. There's an information sharing, you know, no one, we all know that everything that happens in there, we all, you know, stays in there and, and that we all have to, you know, come to the party to try and keep the family safe because mm-hmm. usually it comes with children. It, it's it's amazing. You know, we've come a long, long way from, from when I started where we used to have to go out to the farms and while husband was milking down yes. the car and her not down the down the highway. Yes. And look, you and I are probably over the both sense of, you know, hopefully it grows in a, in a better way in the same light of, um, you know, like even when you talk about country and rural, you want that to keep up with Metro Melbourne as well or Victoria and just yeah. have it all be quite in unison. And one of the things we were highlighting before we actually started was um, the rehabilitation process. And, I, you know, I'm of the opinion that for the betterment of the community, we want to make sure that we're investing in the offenders or the people who are actually um, committing the crimes of family violence to then not have it happen again. You've got a really unique insight and experience on, let's say, how the funding worked in family violence, where it was allocated or whether or not men, and you were telling me a little bit more about how um, men are starting to use the services more as well. Can you shed mm-hmm. some light on a lot of that for us? I guess it was we had rolling funding back in the mm-hmm. day when I started at Way. So, you know, each year it was federally, um, you know, funded and it would just roll over, which mm-hmm. has changed a lot, unfortunately. Yep. We've, we've moved into a corporate world. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yep. So yeah. Everything's by tender now. So it's, oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very hard. Uh, if we want funding, we apply for funding. Um, you know, the department will put out, you know, the application process and then we all put in and and obviously the winner takes all or some. Yeah, yeah, right. With men, though, back when I was away, we were only funded to help women and children. Yeah. So it's a massive gap for men. Yeah. Family violence. Because yeah. I mean, as we spoke about before, it's not just about physical, is it? And and yeah. Like even just power and control and manipulative behaviors, the intimidation side too. That's right. Yeah. The yeah, emotional, psychological, yeah. financial, you know, uh, yep. huge financial. So it's it's really hard. So we used to actually, even though we weren't funded and the department probably don't want to hear this, but we mm-hmm. still we, although we couldn't bring them into our service and sit them down as as a client there and then, we, we would we would do a lot of work over the phone to get referred to our men's behavioural programs. Is that the that's the only one, right? Men's behaviour change, and then yeah. uh, I'm not sure of the other one. Yeah, yeah, there's men's groups and everything like that, but they're they're, they're there for the perpetrators. They're not there for for men escaping family violence. So yeah. a massive gap. Look, there might be I've been out, you know, for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, so there may be other services that are helping them now. And, and if anyone's out there and they want to get in and, and start another service and they mm-hmm. see, you know, a gap in the market, that's the gap, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. one of the gaps. Yeah. And then as as far as perpetrators go, Rach, we, we, we really need to do a lot of work. We need yeah. Early intervention in school, education, yeah. getting up, you know, talking about it and, um, 
And then getting those services on And correcting that, right? Like very early and giving people an opportunity for better and different, you know. And we, you and I understand that anyone who is perpetrating violence or these crimes essentially have been a victim for the majority of their life without support. So it is essential to be able to support them. And it starts at home, doesn't it, you know, with the families as well. I mean, just the way, you know, uh, you speak to to your your children, both male and female, and, you know, and getting those, uh, you know, the, oh, I, I'm not sure how to even put this nicely, you know. But yes, yeah, um, it, it's just awful, you know, to to hear that, you know, girls, you know, uh, aren't as equal as as boys, and um, and it still occurs today. Yes, yeah. Uh, there's it's been some a, what you call. I think the way I explain it sometimes would be. Whether or not you consciously know it now, it's something that has been programmed in society for centuries. Yeah. So we adopt what is normal, even if we are trying to correct it in society. It's like we naturally default to what we were we were taught, which is we're yeah. potentially not having the same not rights, but it's like um, same voice or the stand. Yeah. What's well, it's you know going back to even you know when I was a kid, I was really good at footy. You know? Yeah, and oh, amazing! Yeah. I played. Yeah, I played um, Australian rules, uh, Australian women's football, but yeah. it was you know um, there was only four teams way yeah. back in the day. Uh, and it wasn't a professional thing, but we had western suburbs, you know, eastern. Um, we had cobras with white bait for down here in Frankston, and sometimes, you know, in Daniel or whatever. Yeah. And uh, and Ballarat, I think, was the other one. You know, so we made up the Victorian Women's Football League at the time, wow. which which is now you know grown to, to this. But um, you know, that was so ostracised back then, and. And I even I remember outcast by by being great at football. Yeah. yeah, and I remember I was better than most of the boys in the, uh, yes. football, but I wasn't allowed to play in the football team. Oh, because I was a girl. You yeah. know, um, my dad was a professional footballer, so I you know, he taught me a lot of things when I was a kid. So um, yeah, and that just broke my heart. You know, here's mm-hmm. someone, and we, you know, some ability, and I couldn't play. Mm. There's our connection as well. It's like we have that sport background and still working with, you know, from my end, a lot of the athletes now. But it's like growing up, I think in some ways that's what I probably see in your professional career as well. Growing up with sport in your life is such a um, a value um, in terms of developing resilience in just life. But it's nice in that, I mean, space for the benefit of what you had. However, yes, you were fighting an uphill battle definitely back before things like the AFLW League were even around. Yeah, well, that's right. And I remember even when I was in the police force because, you know, there was a lot of rough women playing and I was a police woman in my early, early days. And, you know, at the time there was a, you know, one of my senior sergeants came to me and he took me into a room. And I probably shouldn't be talking about this, but I'm going to. Oh, okay. He gave me uh, an ultimatum: either oh. you continue to play football, or you or you continue with the police force. Which one do you want to do? Because you can't really do both. Yeah. So I you know. I think, why? Why would he say that? Because it was football as a well as a stigma, or yeah, it was yeah. because there was you know that criminal element playing for uh, the women's football. Oh, I see. and whatever. DCC got it. Yeah, and obviously, uh, same sex relations. Well, that was all boot thing. You know, not talking Um And then you know, yeah, it, um, it was hard because at that time I had to choose. Okay, well, even though I love my football, I run the police force better. So. Yeah, and you did end up choosing. 
Yeah, I had to. I had to. Yeah, yeah, it was like I was given an ultimatum and I probably could have thought it back then, but you just didn't. It's yeah. not something you did back then because, no. uh, you know, and look, I'm not speaking for the whole police force. It was probably just him. Yes, that, of course. Uh, but there was a stigma, you know, that uh-huh. uh, I was playing the criminal element and I'm supposed uh-huh. to be upholding the law. Everybody, you know, I'm going to be playing football. We all know that. Yeah, but back then, I married. Yes, yes. You know, a good one because I've got so many injuries now. Anyway, (laughs) I, I, I hear when you say you made the decision. Even I get it. It's kind of like the naivety and the eagerness to um, be a policewoman, and you know, you want to dedicate your time to it. You naturally would do it, and then in hindsight or lived experience, you kind of think, oh, maybe that wasn't. You know, could have been challenged a little bit more. You know, of course, of yeah. course, yeah, because yeah, I mean, you know, I was young and, and yeah. trying to impress and trying to build a career, and it, yeah. you know, it was my life back mm. then. Like yeah. with the police force, um, and it's no hidden secret that it's a culture, yeah, you know? it's, it's not just a job, it's, a, it's almost an identity. Yeah. And I when I left after 12 years, I was basically, you know, lost because, yeah. you know, my identity had been a police yeah. woman, and so yeah. that was stripped from me. And I, I basically needed to be reprogrammed. Yes. It's interesting you say that because it's a lot of the battle of things that we actually work with in athletes because, you know, like I'll use myself as an ex- example, um, people would often identify Rachel the swimmer. So yeah. even in family or anyone around it would be Rachel the swimmer and you get this such a strong association, your identity is tied up in the sport or the work as a policewoman and I think it's such a – an area that we obviously need to nurture with athletes, especially when they retire, because that's when the mental health kind of decline happens. And like you said, reprogram myself and then figure out who am I without the police force or the actual yeah. work every day. So that's some of the work that we do, you know, with athletes commonly, but I imagine in any profession, retirement, um, it's always a space that as a psychologist, we want to monitor because there's such a loss in there, you know, whether it's a loss of an identity, um, loss of um, purpose as well. Yeah. Yeah, you, you go through a grieving process. Yes. But yeah. Even though it was my choice, you know, and I chose to leave, it's, it's it was still a huge grieving process. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't, um, I, I always know that I, I made the right decision uh, looking back now and, and moving forward. But, you know, it, it is. And I, I look back and when footballers retire, they, they retire so early mm-hmm. uh, and they don't have a lot to fall back on. And, and we see footballers and other athletes, but yes. using that because I love my AFL. Yeah, tragic. so good. <laughs> you know, actually, um, c- coming full story, I said I'd parked before. I'm going to digress and take us back. We were talking about how sometimes the system in family violence and offender work or the drug when you were doing sort of the drug trafficking crimes and those as a policewoman and you were talking about how sometimes the system and the justice system penalties aren't harsh enough. I had a question in there because obviously in my work um, criminal charges around sexual assault, family violence are very lenient. I've had many police women as well as just colleagues and friends who sort of say even just pushing through charges, they need physical evidence that is hard-hitting evidence over the emotional side because it's hard to measure. You know, where do you feel the gaps are in the system? Because I was of the impression that, let's say, the drug crimes tend to be a little bit harsher than, let's say, the sexual Mm -hmm. assault, family violence charges. Am I in the right ballpark on that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I would say definitely. Uh, it's across the board. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, it's too lenient for everything. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. one of the main reasons why is, is that all our prisons are so corroded. Yeah, uh, that's where the place and um, not building more and and I, you know God forbid we end up like America and have all those privatized prisons all over America yeah. and just continually a massively growing business. I mean we've already got some here, but yeah, yeah, got it over there. It's just prison after prison after prison, and it's become that in itself has become a problem. But um, I am mortified when I hear of a, a child sex offender. Yes, community based order. Yes. This child's life will ruin forever. She will soon, or he or she will soon be an adult, and and on their lives, uh, you know, what, what they have to then go through as adults are, uh, you know, they're they're already behind the eight ball because they've got, they've got to fight a lot harder, you know, yeah. with their own life, and and then you've got, you know, a, a, a perpetrator of the sexual assault that goes and has a, a community based order. He's out, and only to probably reoffend again. Yeah, so, um, and you know the parole system as well. You know, yes, you yes. see that so many times. Yeah, terrible rapes and murders. You know where the where the perpetrators on parole. Yeah, and actually, what we were speaking about before, unless and I think even in my experience when I was working with the sex and violent offenders, as you say, the the places are so limited, but the ones that are on those um, supervision orders or insecure facilities, let's say the order is up to five years, so they have to be in there for five years for rehabilitation purposes other than, let's say, a prison without. So they are man 24-7, they're engaging in courses, they're marked on, let's say, progress in terms of are they engaging in treatment, are they getting better, and they're measured on that. And the interesting thing is when I hear you say that, it makes sense because there aren't enough of those places to, you know, keep people in at least for that period of time and then make sure that they're coming out learning something rather than reoffending. Well, there's no deterrent, is there? There's no deterrent for, you know, for people that are committing crimes. So, mm-hmm. well, you know, if I, even if I get caught, you know, mm-hmm. and especially if they don't have that whole family, strong family unit, mm-hmm. they've got no one there to, to dis- you know, to disappoint or, mm-hmm. or, or you know, uh, to hurt mm-hmm. their own wives, you know, they, they've got nothing to lose. So they'll just go out and keep committing these crimes, knowing that they're only going to get back in the system. Yeah. And they'll get out and they'll, and they'll leave then. And we have, yeah. you know, we know recidivist offenders just, yep. that, it's just a continual cycle. But, yeah. Um, yeah, there's got to be some deterrent for them. Mm. Um, and I, I don't have any answers, right? And we don't want to keep building, you know, that prison system. We want we want to make it so, you know, the offenders don't offend. Yeah. Than, cool. You know, um, then keep, you know, putting them in. And I think, you know, early interventions um, and, and and obviously we need greater a greater deterrent and, and I don't know what that is, but yeah, I just, yeah. I, 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 it actually repulses me that the sex offenders, whether they commit a hurt or a an adult or a child or whatever, are given such lenient sentences. Yeah, yep. And it's a bit hard when you make me say, uh, when I hear you say that, I'm going to chime in around, um, you know, yes, physical evidence seems so much more concrete in the court of law. The problem is the emotional scarring that, you know, someone like myself as a psychologist will deal with for someone's lifetime. And then in the case management community work in family violence, and I know Waze was doing all the long-term case management work of people 10 years and more, it's it's immeasurable, meaning we yeah. you cannot just put a snapshot of um, someone's 
impact from child sexual abuse or those kind of things and then say this is what the punishment should be. But it's tricky because it's kind of like they need to take that into account as even more weighted than the physical side. And then, you know, then, you know, forget, I mean, you know, that and you've got the court case thereafter and then yeah. they to traumatise themselves through a court of law. Absolutely. By telling a story and then yep. they called out as, you know, why did you wear, you know, such a low dress or yes. why were oh, you yeah. so drunk, you know, oh. putting a bit of a blame on them, which is, which is ludicrous. It is, isn't it? So, so you know, a lot of women um, don't want to go through that. Of course, yep. And we get so many uh, rapes and, and sexual assaults that, that are unreported because, you know, women don't want to have to, and men, don't want to have to go through that horrible court system that we mm-hmm. have in place. I know. that That's one of the areas I'd say is um, unfortunately still very archaic. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and it's, it's a system, you know, back, you know, that common law. You know, yes. that, that hasn't changed a lot over time. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky enough now we've got, you know, family violence courts yes. and we've got drug courts. So, yes. you know, um, yes. those things are coming to the forefront and, and growing in that area. But And then support workers in those areas as well. Right. That's right. Yep. That's right. Yep. But as far as, you know, the, the system, you know, even, you know, going into court, having, you know, the wigs and everything, and it's quite daunting. Oh, very. It's intimidating for myself. Yeah. You know, yes. Yeah. No, it's because it, it is. It's, it's so traditional. It's such a traditional place in the court, county courts yeah. of home court. Yeah. Uh, and and they know. hold so much power. I mean, I feel like, although they should and judges, but the, the, the platform is such an intimidating thing that, you know, half the time if I have an open criminal case and a, I'm trying to support a client, I'm actually just trying to manage their apprehension and anxiety and ground them enough that they can actually tell the court and the judge what they want them to hear. Because mm-hmm. often someone's personal account is so skewed because obviously I get the full count of everything that's happening, but when you're in that space, it's very hard to articulate and share what is actually necessary. Mm. You know, you go to those those courts, and and you know, the, not only do you have to you know go into through a cold room full of of strange looking people, yeah, now looking at you, and and with with costumes on, what etiquette, you know, and um, and then the court eagle. Yeah, and it's terrifying for anyone you know that doesn't know that system to be involved. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like you know stepping back in time, going into the does, doesn't it? Good point. Yeah. Well, talking about I'm going to use slipping back in time. Mm-hmm. You were saying because I know you've had such a great career history, but actually on a more exciting note, um, and I was excited to see you on Australia's first. TV series of Hunted Australia um, and I saw your name pop up and you had put it up and I was so excited to see you on it and you were a ground hunter, willing participants to be civilians trying to escape special forces, is that right? Is that how you would Yeah, do yeah absolutely. Look, uh, I can't talk obviously too much uh, about Hunted but I'll give yep. you a little bit of an overview. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you're dead on right, uh, Rachel. They're, you call them fugitives. Um, yeah, that's right. And they're casted into these roles, and while they're not roles, because they're actually, um, you know, people that are actually just let out uh, and, and and go on the run for a period of time. And then you've got the ground hunters, which I'm one of. Mm-hmm. And then you've also got the the headquarters, which encompasses, um, you know, a, a group of specialists such as you know um, computer hackers and analysts yeah. and things like that. 
psychologist. Yes, I saw the forensic psychologist on that. Yeah, and and uh, and expert investigators as well. So yeah, um, and and the ground hunters um, are made up of specialist police or ex police. Yeah, um, yes, they So there's yes, incredible. Yeah, well, last year there was uh, four tanks, and I actually came in late because yeah. I wasn't in the original crew, so mm-hmm. I was a, a kind of wing in, as you call it. So I only did about a week or so on the yeah. on the show. But whereas this time, um, series two, yeah, uh, I'm doing the whole show, which I'm right. really, really excited about. You know, you think about, and even in a week, it's like it makes me think it's it's such a quick turnaround because you know you're what when you're watching the show, and I was watching, it's kind of like the fugitives are out there; they're trying to just manage every move and escape and evade police. It just happens so quickly in terms of how quickly the police special forces and headquarters can move on information. And it's almost, I mean, some of them were just 24, 48 hours, you know, or 48 hours. Time. Oh, look, technology and the way it's just coming, you know, out, uh, you know, day after day is incredible. When I started in the police force, we we used to have, we didn't even have computers. I mean, we had the typewriters yeah. with the carbon copies, putting it through. And, you know, back then, I mean, I'm a pretty good typist now, but back yeah. then it was like the two fingers trying to type. And, and then was it like, you know, to communicate to each other, the ra- what radio? We what didn't, or something? yeah, we did not have mobile phones. No, that cash yeah. So, you know, because I joined in 85 and look, and I didn't have computers. So we, computers were out. And I remember I started at Eltman, yeah. junior constable. And I mean, a whole room was dedicated to as a computer. Like it was a whole room. Yes. It was crazy. Wow, um, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And that was just, you know, our very minimal system. We didn't have, um, you know, computers where we could actually sit down and do our work on. Yeah. It was all done by typewriter and and we we do records of interview with people, and it all be typed. And after six hours, we'd have to go into a court of law, take our court book of law, um, um, get gain more time, interview time. And, yes, you know, behind behind closed doors, and say, okay, we need an extension because. Yep. And sometimes we could be going for almost twenty four hours on big cases. It's so much. Yeah, like you're a bad typist. <laughs> Those documents are like, yeah, you know what? That was terrible. So um, it would take a long time. Whereas obviously the apes came in, and then later on CDs and and you know right. the technology goes. Uh, yeah, but, but now uh, talking about hunted, you know, you've got uh, everything from CCTV. Yeah, like registration recognition, face recognition. Yeah, the ability to have access to computer yeah. hackers, things like that. So, yeah. ATMs, tracing. You know. Yes, let's thought. Hacking. You know. Yeah. You know, I, I was one of the side steps I was thinking about on the show because obviously these are fugitives, but they're sort of everyday individuals. And I, it made me think about the people that you and I have either work with or no, or let's say are criminals, it made me sort of think that someone to evade police uh, arrest or whereabouts is someone who is so well connected in the community. Um, And that's just what I was thinking because I was like, they have to have all these people looking out for them, looking after them and underground kind of things, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if I'm accurate. That was my thought. No, 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 I I 100% agree with you. In fact, I was out for dinner last night and we were talking about that and I was just talking about Cruel, for those that don't know, Cruel was a, a murderist and rapist yeah. uh, years ago and he's still out there today. Oh, wow. And I think, you know, part of that is 
um, you know, had, was he, you know, that well integrated into, you know, the system yes. that he escaped evasion because, you know, he, he used techniques and things that, you know, he had an inside knowledge of, of thing. Um, yep. yeah, what he was doing. So, yeah, and not to mention, you know, still being out there with his DNA, not being able to trace. Oh, how begs that question, doesn't it? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, but it's very hard to evade capture these days. <laughs> I mean, I think Hunted showed us a lot and um, showed on a very kind of like a reality show basis, but actually what can happen and what is an insight behind um, the special forces and what's going on there. Mm. Well, let's hope that next season we don't have any people that make it to the end. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be watching. We will see. Maybe, maybe the fugitives are going to be learning from the fast season. And yeah. we're planning the time now to. Yeah, look, it's a great show. If you, if you haven't seen it, you can still see it on Ted Play. It's yeah. really, really good. So uh, for anyone that hasn't hasn't seen it, it's it's great. Uh, not, not, not. Um, I'm not just, um, you know, flying it because I'm in it. It's actually, no, no, I love it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's on Channel Ten, so uh, mm-hmm. keep your eyes out. And you, last year, it followed on from MasterChef. So once MasterChef yes. ended, it got that seven thirty time slot. So, and I will say, like, I love. I can't take all my clients out of experience their level of complex trauma and being in the system. We all have a, a, a sort of passion around true crime and you know this kind of work. And I love seeing professionals in their element and in their work. Of, what they do because it is stuff you do not see every time and even similar to why I want to have this podcast out um, to be able to share some of the things that we actually do do and talk about. And look, it's good fun because I don't think there's anything like that on television. At no. The no. And we've got so much reality TV and even though this is kind of reality TV, it, it's got that twist. Yeah, it's uh, not a. I mean, you're making me think it's not like a love dating show. It's yeah, a... <laughs> At the end of any episode that we have and a guest on the show, we have some ethos life questions that I want to ask you and you keep them really brief. What is your biggest life lesson that you took away from your career and work? My biggest life lesson is, and, it, and it's a bit controversial and it's a bit harsh, you know, that everyone is expendable when it comes to work and that you, really. and that you, you know, when you think that you, uh, that, your work can't do without you really need to put yourself first because you're no good to anyone if you you battle on through you know you obviously burnout stress I don't know work. and I know you know in the police force I thought that when I left uh if I left you know all my jobs would come crashing down and it's just waste the same with ways as a general manager I left someone replaced me and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. but if you have to look after yourself uh-huh. Um, at the end of the day, then uh, you know uh, you're doing yourself a big disservice because you really, you know, your health is so important. Yeah. Um, and you've only got one life, and and you need to go after it. And I, look, I don't even think it's controversial because I might chime in and say that you know you're still Kim without the work. Yeah, that's right. I am still me, and I and um, life still goes on, and uh, and it just gets better actually because you you know you. you you close one door and then you're open to more opportunities and you yeah. know that yourself. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you are today. Um, you know, you. practice and everything else. But yeah. you know, from swimmer and to being deprogrammed to, to making this whole new career for yourself from that, yeah. and you're wonderful at it. In one sentence, what message around psychology and mental health do you want to leave for the listeners? 
Okay, well, that kind of continues on from the last yeah. question for me, yeah. doesn't it? You really need to look after your mental health. Um, yeah. It's so important. I mean, it also, it, it controls everything, you know, your physical makeup, you know, if you don't look after your your, your mental health, you know, your, your physical health obviously is um, affected as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I didn't want to talk about this, but I'm going to. <clears throat> when I left Waze, I actually had a heart attack. Um, and I think, think that that uh, was was brought on by stress because even though outwardly I, I wasn't that stressed, I mean, I was stressed. Yes, I think it's not, a, yeah. it's not always a mental stress. Sometimes you hold, I would say for myself as well, you hold such a physical stress because you can keep going. And I think in well, some right. way that's a big and, Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, for me, I just kept going, going, going like a workhorse and, and not really realising or, or, you know, sometimes forgetting that, you know, I'm human and yeah. uh, that, you know, I can't do everything all at once. And yeah. anyway, uh, two or three weeks after I retired actually, yeah, um, and I hear this a lot, within the police force as well. But yeah. when I was fired from ways, I had a heart attack. And oh. and upon, you know, investigation, obviously I went into surgery and so forth and they did the angiogram, but by the time mm. I got through, my arteries had cleared. And the, the cardiologist said I had perfect arteries. So there was no reason. No, yep. Yeah. Of my lifestyle or cholesterol or whatever. It was it was obviously uh either a blood clot or a, um, a spasm. Yeah, which could have been brought on by stress. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm much more in tune. Yeah, good. Good. I was a bit of an eye opener. So I'm back at the gym. Yes, good. That also <laughs> you always were there. Yeah. But what message would you like everyone to know about the police force or the community health sector around family violence? Look, I think, I mean, you know, Australia, especially Victoria, I think, I think Victoria is is a really good lead across the, our nation for, for communities, the community sector, for policing as well. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I think, you know, we have an incredible um, lot of community services open up to us and, and it's spreading out into regional centres and and, and uh, the funding that, that is going in. I mean, obviously we need more. We always need more. I, I think, you know, we're just really fortunate to have what we have, and we have a very, very we're very, very fortunate to have the caliber of workers Amazing. that work within within it. But you know, it's really important to go and see professionals. You know, if you're if you're feeling like your mental health is suffering, um, and you're not traveling along really well, you know, suck that up, you know, um, and and whatever. But in actual fact, it takes it takes a lot of courage to go wow. out. Speak to someone, not and and I'm and I I you know if I can send any message out, it's it's to go and see somebody, to go yeah. and talk to a counsellor, go and talk to a psychologist, or even yeah. a GP who will recommend you to and make a referral for you to go off to someone. You know, it's really important because you know your mental health, you know, controls most of your body, and yes. um, and it's it, it, um, without it, um, you know, in that. Uh, getting really serious mental health, you know, serious depression and so forth, um, anxiety and whatever. But if you can nip the bud and talk about it, um, and look, if if something's occurring in your life, you know, it's really important to talk about it, so even if it's just to your best friend or whatever. But yeah, mental health's very important. Love that. Take care of you and stay connected and supported, right? That's right. That's right. Kim, I've loved the conversation with you. I feel like I could chat about so many things. 
been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights and just sharing that with everyone. I think there's so many invaluable gems that people can take home and truly just understand from your experience and what you've shared with us today. So thank you for coming on. Thanks, mate. Just an absolute pleasure. If you'd like to access our team of psychologists for professional mental health support, please visit www.ethospsychology.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to Life in the Cyclone on your favourite podcast listing platform to better understand psychology today.